Hi, everybody. I'm really excited about this episode that I have for you today. Allison Gilbert is on our show. She's an award-winning journalist and co-author of Listen World, the first biography of American writer Elsie Robinson, a newspaper columnist who came from nothing and became the most read woman in the country and the highest paid woman writer in the William Randolph Hearst media empire. Allison Gilbert is the host of Women Journalists 9-11, Their Stories. It's a 20-part documentary series produced in collaboration with the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. For this, she interviewed such luminaries as Savannah Guthrie, Maggie Haberman, Dana Bash, and Linda Wertheimer. She's co-executive producer of the companion two-hour film that features, among many others, Tom Brokaw, Rahima Ellis, Aunt... Thompson, Scott Pelley, many more. Gilbert is the official narrator of the 9-11 Memorial Museum's historical exhibition and audio tour, the only female journalist to be so honored. She writes regularly for the New York Times and other publications. On her blog, she features Q&As with some of the most notable names in our cultures today, including Ariana Huffington, John Stewart, Henry Louis Gates Jr., Danny Shapiro, and Gretchen Rubin. I know you are going to love the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am sitting down today with someone I've been waiting a long time to have this conversation with, Allison Gilbert. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. What a thrill. Thank you so much for having me. So I have a million questions. My starting question is always the same, which is asking folks sort of how have they come to find themselves interested and in the world of grief and loss? Mine is a very easy question. It has a direct line to the deaths of both of my parents within five years of each other. Shortly after I graduated college, they each died of cancer. And it was also on the heels of the 9-11 attacks. And so those were three pivotal experiences for me that I integrated into my life in many ways. But the one thread that pushed me forward to writing about each of these experiences, which I have, is that I found it really cathartic to do so. Mm. And I found that I was connecting with readers in an authentic way. And it was gratifying to put my feelings on paper and then hear back from those who found the words either instructive or comforting or anything in between. It just felt like the right choice for me to start marinating and thinking about these issues in a deeper way. Oh, I love that answer. And it's one that comes up in the podcast pretty often is that people found a creative outlet that really was just for them. And sometimes it's a brand new one. You know, suddenly people are painting and they were never painting before. And sometimes it's a return to something that they know. And sometimes it's a deepening of something they already do. But, you know, grief is all these feelings that we weren't having 20 minutes ago and they need to get moved around and shift it. And I love what you said, which is you were drawn to the writing already, already a writer, but also the response from people, right? So it's the process and the product, the product people responded to and that validation of being able to speak the same language of people who need someone who can help them with their language is just really powerful. I would also add, I'll be a little bit crass if that's okay, particularly after 9-11, I got way too close to those unfolding events. I was a producer working for NBC News at the time. And when the second tower collapsed, I was way too close and was caught up in that ferocious dust cloud with debris dropping to the left, right, and on top of me and eventually was taken to the ER my clothes were cut off, tubes were put down my throat, and I thought I was going to die. And thank goodness, of course, I was one, and I recognize I was one of the lucky ones who survived, but I suffered PTSD. And the reason why this is related to our grief discussion is that a very, very skilled therapist was recommended Mm -hmm. to many of the media 
folks who were on the ground that day who were equally traumatized by what they experienced. And the advice at that point was to purge, was to vomit in words what you were keeping inside. Mm -hmm. And so it's akin to when you get nauseous and sick to your stomach when you eat something bad. Mm -hmm. It was the same advice, which was to purge, to vomit on paper words, to get it out of my system. And that is something that I will forever be grateful for. And I think is one of the great gifts of writing. It helps us to stop ruminating yeah. and it helps us to release some of our really scary, sad, emotionally fraught uh, conversations that we have with ourselves. Ugh. That, okay. So I, I love how clearly you just put that. And I'm, I'm so sorry about your PTSD. You have written so beautifully about exactly what you just described. And I'll put, I'll put a link so that people can read about that in the show notes. There's a, a neuroscientist, a doctor, Tracy Shores, who I interviewed a while back, and she talks about those ruminations and how this isn't really her language, but, but how the body needs us to trust that we will attend to those thoughts and that the actual act of writing them down loosens the brain. It releases the idea that it has to continually think about it. And I've found, I, I have a grief writing workshop that I do with folks and I have found what people report back to me is the same kind of releasing just around the narrative, right? Like you kind of can't remember what happened and you spend all that time piecing it together because the brain does those things where it shuts down and gets foggy to protect us. But we need to know what happened. We need to have a narrative that's like, this is my story of what happened to me on that day. Even if it includes parts where, you know, and I just don't remember this part. But when we take the pen to paper, and there is some neuroscience that pen to paper is more impactful. When we take the pen to paper, we don't have to do all the thinking. Our brain knows because it saw us do it, that those important stories of our lives are preserved and we won't, and you know, if we need them, they're there for us. And it's so important and significant. And I love God, that therapist you know, that's the opposite of what they were telling people in the eighties, you know, in the earlier days of what do we do with bad feelings while well, we just try not to feel them. This was whatever they are, make sure that they're not still inside your system. And it just sounds like a tool that's worked. It's worked for me. Yeah. Can you, can you take us into your most recent project? Can you tell us about this passion project that you have been on and has recently just come out and you're on book tour for, I, I would love for folks to hear everything we can. Yeah. Well, Elsie Robinson has been in my life more or less for 30 years. She was unknown to me when I first discovered her name, but I'll give you the headline of who she is first. And then if you want, I could double back about how I discovered her, but she was at one time the highest paid woman writer in the entire William Randolph Hearst media empire. And if you don't know who Hearst was, he was the country's most powerful publisher. He owned newspapers across the entire country. He owned wire services. He had a stake in Hollywood. He was a real estate mogul, powerful capital P, highlight, bold, you know, just a major force in this country. And Elsie Robinson went toe to toe with him. She demanded to be paid what she was worth. She made sure that she could work in what we would call remotely before that was even a thing. And she knew that she was deserving of that. She brought more readers to Hearst than so many other of his writers. And she came to him with evidence of her success. And she was a columnist and her column drawing on the name of my book, it, her column was called listen world. That's how we came up with the title of the book. So great. She wrote, yeah, I love it. She had a lot to say. She wanted the world to listen to her points of view from everything from 
parenting and family and motherhood, but then morphing over time to then invite more readers, meaning men, more readers to talk about let's say it's communism or anti-Semitism or war or racism, capital punishment. I mean, she took on the major issues of the day, issues that today we would still find completely timely and urgent. That's amazing. I mean, she is so amazing. And when I've seen you posting about it on your Instagram, which I would encourage people to follow you both because you, you know, you share about your life, but also the things that you're really deeply passionate about. It was hard not to want to just, you know, tear the cover off the book because you are so excited about this discovery and this find. Can you tell us how you became aware of who she even was in the world? Yeah. So we talked a little bit earlier about the deaths of both of my parents. My mother, was my first parent to pass away. And my brother and I returned to our childhood home after she died to start packing it up. And my job on this particular day was to pack up all of my mom's books. And I was so, I was so lost yeah. in my sadness that really a task that might have taken an hour or two, I dragged out because I was opening every book. I was looking through what she annotated. I wanted to see my mom's handwriting one more time. I wanted to see if she left notes for me improbably in the pages. I don't know what I was looking for, but I just, I was looking for my mom, you know, in a, I was just very, I felt very young to have lost my mom. I was 25 and I wasn't yet married. I didn't have children of my own. I was yet to become this full-fledged adult. And I longed for that tether. Well, lo and behold, thank goodness I didn't make a short job out of this because towards the end of that particular day, something did in fact fall out from one of those books on my mom's bookshelf. And she had stuck in the pages, a folded up, squished like origami because it had been in there for yep. so long. A piece of, remember that old onion skin? Oh, I know paper? exactly what you're talking about. I do. So my mom had retyped a poem and it was a poem about grief and loss. The poem is called Pain, P-A-I-N. And it was the most tough love poem about grief that I had ever read. Mm. And it was attributed to someone named Elsie Robinson. And I just had to know who she was. And this is kind of what I mean by tough love. Basically the thought of the poem is this, be lucky, feel lucky that you had a mother Mm. worth missing. And it was kind of like, snap out of it. Like, you know, you're going to be okay. And my mom was also kind of tough love. And so it just felt that voice, the Elsie Robinson voice was just something and someone I had to get to know more. And that's what set me out on writing the first biography of Elsie Robinson. And that's what gave birth to Listen World. I know you have the poem right there. Will you read it to us? We would love, I mean, I'm also, as you're getting ready to read it, I'm really curious. I'm always curious as as to whether or not you believe that your mom had a hand past her living hours, whether, whether that was a sign or a gift or a thing, or if that would, that was just the way the universe unfolded for you. Well, I don't know if it's a sign. But I do know it's an absolute gift. I know that in the writing of this book, which has been on and off for 30 years, there is nothing that has been the equivalent of the words that Elsie Robinson wrote. And I have a co-author and Julie and I did some research yeah. And with about 9,000 newspaper columns, essays, 
articles, <laughs> columns. I read a lot yeah. of Elsie Robinson's words and her words and her voice were so meaningful to me. And in some ways, I don't want to be too dramatic, but became a surrogate maternal voice yeah. for me in the absence of my mom. And mm. so I do feel exceptionally privileged that this project has created a bridge mm. that I otherwise would not have had to my mom. Yeah. Oh, I got to get that. I get that. Well, we're lucky we get to hear the poem. Okay. So if I read this too fast, you can always rewind and of course, and listen to it again. And purposefully Julia Shears, my co-author and I include this poem in the back of Listen World, our biography of Elsie Robinson. So if you want to read it again, of course it's there as well. So the poem is called pain. Why must I be hurt? Suffering and despair cowardice and cruelty, envy and injustice. All of these hurt. Grief and terror, loneliness and betrayal, and the agony of loss and death. All these things hurt. Why? Why must life hurt? Why must those who love generously, live honorably, feel deeply, all that is good and beautiful be so hurt? while selfish creatures go unscathed. Mm. That is why, because they can feel. Hurt is the price to pay for feeling. Pain is no accident, nor punishment, nor mockery by some savage God. Pain is part of growth. The more we grow, the more we feel. The more we feel, the more we suffer. For if we are able to feel beauty, we must also feel the lack of it. Those who glimpse heaven are bound to sight hell. To have felt deeply is worth anything it cost. To have felt love and honor, courage and ecstasy is worth any price. And so, since hurt is the price of larger living, I will not hate pain, nor try to escape it. Instead, I will try to meet it bravely, bear it proudly, not as a cross or a misfortune, but an opportunity, a privilege, a challenge to the God that gropes within me. Oh, man. Oh, that fell out of a book. Well, you were, and I read that really resonated with me when after my mom died, it was my mom died just before COVID began. And so her house sort of sat like a mausoleum for a year. And then I went back and, and really slow. I mean, there were some things that I tossed quickly but I, but it took about two full months to go through her things and particularly anything that had the remnants of her, her handwriting, needlepoint, clothing that she wore, you know, things with lingering sense. I just, I, you know, to me, it felt like she, her cells are still here and I, I wanted, you know, to keep everything. That poem is so beautiful. It makes me, do you know, Kelly Corrigan, the, yeah, the of course, and, of course. So her, she has that gorgeous book. Tell me more about it's really about the death of her best friend and also the death of her dad. And at the end, at least of the version I have, she, there's a, a transcript of a conversation she has with Jen Hatmaker. And it's like the last lines of the conversation she's describing just being beside herself while driving, which really I related to because I cry mostly in the car and, and she has to pull her car over to the side of the road and she's crying, you know, just sobbing that she's lost her dad who she loves so much. And she's 50 years old. And the, and the line that she says is like, you know what? 
if my kid has to pull their car over to the side of the road, bereft that I am no longer with them because that is the amount of love that we created together in this life that we had together. We're doing something right. That has to be what we're looking for. Like the pain is the offset of this thing that we got to enjoy all these years that we got to enjoy it. And your poem is very similar in that. The idea that it, that, you know, the, the pain is the underbelly of the gift that we get. Because I guess the choice, if you were to follow this logic through, if you didn't want the pain, you can't, that love. would mean you didn't have that love to that extent. And so the choice is to embrace the pain because then it's a reflection of what you had. And in that moment, when I was so deep in that grief, it was so raw to read that poem, it just made me need to learn more about who Elsie Robinson was, what else she had to say about life. And so in terms of the book, we structured it so we include so much of Elsie Robinson's voice. It's not just a straight biography. We really upend the traditional structure of a biography. And so of course we have the author's voice and we provide context and structure, but we really work in so much of Elsie Robinson's own words so she can also tell her own story because to tell a story about a woman and not let her speak for herself seemed like an odd decision for two women writers. We wanted Elsie to be our co-author in, in essence, telling mm -hmm. her own story, which I think we've done. And I just, it, the feedback that we've gotten, you know, the book has, we've been really really lucky. I'm still pinching myself. It's been reviewed by the New York Times and the Washington Post and USA Today. It's just been extraordinary. And part of the reason I think is because we let Elsie Robinson shine. You know, it feels like a love story though, the way that it unfolds. So I, I'll be honest and tell you, I read a lot of memoir, but not a lot of biography, but mostly because of your enthusiasm. And because I did know a little bit of the story that you have said through following you on Instagram and knowing you a little bit, I just really wanted to know more about this person. And I think about, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to people and they're, and they are talking about their relationships, part of the way that I sort of want to unconditionally love my people is to adore them for who they are, right? Like not put them on a pedestal as some sort of superhuman, but just adore them for who they are, which might also be that they leave the cap off the toothpaste or that they get too angry, you know, at the kids or whatever it is. And I feel like, that's what it feels like. It, it almost is hard to believe that you all aren't like related to her or something that the way in which you want her to be the story, you know, and, and she's given so many of her own words for that. It's like, it, I mean, this is ridiculous, but like, I didn't want the story to be over my oh. relationship that you created of knowing that's you know, the biggest yeah. compliment you can give is that you didn't want the story to be over. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you know what it's like when you're really committed to something, like you feel like this person is someone, you know, and someone that is a friend. And the other thing that I was thinking, I talked to so many grievers, you know, my work as a trauma therapist is mostly talking to people about loss. And one of the things that was something that people had told me, but I don't think I really like deeply understood it until I had my own experience with it is how you can become, I'm not the unfair word maybe, or the would be obsessed, but how you can become singularly focused on something as again, maybe, maybe a way of allowing your grief to stick to something that isn't just sad. So for me, it was traveling when my mom died and it was like, we were in COVID and we were going to have to come and sort of sit in one place. I was like, I need to go see the whole expanse of the planet. Like I, my life, I need to live as much life as possible with my children right now. And in fact, we made that happen. We drove across country, but I've heard many people who suddenly need to renovate their homes, suddenly, you know, want to archive their grandfather's letters. And this to me feels like that, like 
a transfer of the love. And you said it has this maternal quality. I really feel like that comes through. Oh, well, that is such a lovely thing for you to say. I'm very grateful for that. Tell me, what does it mean when you're writing a biography? Like, what are the responsibilities that end up coming in here? And I know you have said before that even the idea of doing this and having this be connected to grief was something that our friend and colleague, David Kessler, put in your ear. Can you talk just a little bit about um, the responsibilities and sort of the tenor of what, what you have to do when you are writing someone else's story? Well, there is a lot of fact-checking. There's a lot of archival digging. There's a lot of library exploration. There's a lot of fact-finding. In Elsie Robinson's case, much of her writing has never been digitized. And so there was a lot of research that was impossible to do, you know, by Google. And so it was a lot of hardcore digging. And that was part of the exhausting nature of the book, but also the exciting nature of the book. There was no previous biography of her. So there was fewer breadcrumbs to follow. There were some, but we really had to pave this path ourselves. And so to us, so many women's stories have gone unrecognized or underappreciated. And so we kind of feel like we're on team Elsie. You know, we are the conduits of her story. If we could help resurrect her legacy, you know, she was incredibly well known in her day. She had more than 20 million readers. And to put that into perspective, you know, today, that's double the number of current subscribers to the New York Times. I mean, she had America's attention. Talk about platform. And so for us to take someone who's been completely erased from history and to make sure she's remembered feels incredibly important to us as we try, I think, collectively to right some wrongs in this history about whose stories get told and whose stories get recorded and whose stories endure. Are you being inundated with other people who want you to focus on women? Because again, it's a pretty extraordinary thing, right? As soon as you get into the story of who she is, it's pretty extraordinary that we don't know who she is. It reminded me, actually, I turned to my daughter and was like, oh, this book is like hidden figures, like a story that you can't believe that you don't know. And the reason that you don't know must be because people decided to let that story drop in. It isn't just that time passed. It's that people make decisions about who they're going to lift up as heroes and, you know, provide a legacy for. Are there many people now who are wanting you to know about their great aunt or the woman who started their university? Are you hearing from folks? We are hearing from so many people. And what's really even more exciting than like that broad net that is now being cast are the people who Elsie Robinson touched. You know, she, her brand, when she first started, she was at the Oakland Tribune. And before she wrote for adults, for a national audience, she wrote for kids and she had a children's section. And the reason why this is relevant to what you just asked me is that she started that in 1918 and that brand endured, the Aunt Elsie brand endured until 1970. She died in 1956. And so talk about how we bloggers, we writers, we all want to have our brands today. How are we going to be known our platform? Well, Elsie Robinson started the Aunt Elsie brand Back in the 19-teens, she died in 1956. And as I said, the Aunt Elsie brand endured for decades after she died. So in 1970 was the last Aunt Elsie column. And so we have heard from Aunt Elsie club members. There were clubs in her name. Aunt Elsie so clubs. great. There were Aunt Elsie parades that were held in her honor, live huge theatrical shows that took place with kids, you know, on lines by the thousands to attend. 
it was a phenomenon. And we've heard from those men and women in their 70s, in their 80s, in their 90s, one who is 101 years old, who remembers the pride that they had corresponding with, and I put this in quotes, Aunt Elsie. Well, I have to tell you, as I was reading the book, so both of my parents were huge readers. And in fact, in my mother's obituary, they died two years apart. My dad from small cell cancer, my mom suddenly in her sleep when I was on vacation with her. And we have a little local town library. They live in a small town in Cape Cod. And we put in her obituary, you know, my mother read every nonfiction book in the Kituit library which wasn't exactly true, but it was really close to true. And our library had, you know, one of those like step ladders here, new releases. And in fact, the librarians just held everything. My mother really loved true crime, but the thing that she loved the most was a biography. So my dad. And so I had one of those sort of like meta Sat, I've had this with a few things. My editor, Jessica DeLong, wrote a book about the boat lift at 9-11, which is just an extraordinary story. I've known Jessica since I was 10. So the idea that my mother didn't get to read her book about something that she would have been just out of her mind to know. But when, when I had the book in my hands, I thought this is one of those rare times where we, w- we would have read the same book and had a conversation about you know, how it touched us and how it, and, and politics and prose, which was, which is on your book tour. They really generously, when my dad was dying, I think he was less able to read these books than I thought, but every week they sent three of, you know, most recent hardback because that was the kind of reader he was. They just shipped the ones that they, and, and there was a buyer there who actually just recently died, but he was the guy who would pick out the books because again, those weren't the books that I was reading. So I couldn't trust myself to. So I just wanted to say that oh. to you. That there are these little threads and connections around this. Oh, I love story that. That are so meaningful to me. What do you want to see with this story? I feel like writers come into our work, both with our own commitments to it. And also, I think when you're telling someone else's story, you know, to me, it feels like it's part of a really large feminist thread that I felt really grateful, right? Like I felt really grateful, like we need to pull these women from out from underneath the sand to remind us that it's not new to want to have a brand. It's not new to want to have a voice. It's not new to want to be influential. It's not new to want to talk about things that impact half of the population. What What is your hope with this, with your book? I want people, if I were to have my desires fulfilled, to fall in love with Elsie's words as I have, because she writes from so many different subject matters in a way that I find quite visceral. Mm -hmm. And in terms of her writing about grief, she experienced a tremendous amount of loss in her life. And I found in, in addition to the poem pain that I've read, she had much to say about how to move forward Mm. after loss. She has another poem that we included in the book called I build happiness. And it's about how to move forward after adversity after tragedy. And I have also found that to be a recipe in my own life. And there's so much more from her columns. It's not just poetry, right? There's some straightforward advice and guidance and words of wisdom that were hard earned. And so I appreciate that. But you asked me what I hope people get. Julia Shears and I know that nobody is going to spend the kind of time with Elsie Robinson's source material as we have, <laughs> right? Yeah. We talked before, there are 9,000 pieces of her writing by our count. That's a lot. So what we have done is distill some of her best into this book. So you can read Listen World, you can read the biography and get a full sense of her tone and the magic that comes from the way she shapes a sentence 
which is full of grit and full of moxie and fire. And I hope that that helps people understand who she was without ever having to do any more work, right? Because we know that a book sometimes is hard enough to get through when you're grieving. But if you do, I think you'll find a companion. I think you'll find a friend. And in my case, um, you know, we talked about it before. It was a little bit maternal for me in the absence of my own mom. And it felt right and it felt good. And I feel really lucky that I've been able to spend so much time with Elsie Robinson. You know, it's so interesting hearing you say that part of what she's encouraging is that thing that so much, so many of us find surprising and hard in that profound loss that it really knocks you on your ass. And it's hard to believe that the, that the world could continue spinning. And in fact, it's sort of insulting, but also, you know, we have lives that we've built and people who are connected to us. And so it's, even though we haven't really been taught how to do it and everybody's inventing it to some degree for themselves that we do need maybe a, maybe a bold coaching voice, you know, one with written moxie, but also just the belief that it can happen. And so I'm always thinking about that when people are telling their grief stories or when they're writing a memoir or highlighting someone else's difficult experience, really, those are just over and over again, the whispers of this can be done. It can be survived. We can, you know, we can build a life. Biography is an often overlooked genre when it comes to providing incredible solace when it comes to grief. I think we're familiar, many of us, with the power of, let's say, a support group or going on retreat with other people who have suffered loss or joining a Facebook community or hearing stories on a podcast like yours. There is power in not feeling alone. And for whatever reason, I think biography has given been given short shrift. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to read a story if it's been identified as that human has also suffered loss, how did they manage? What did they do to claw their way out of their despair? And so I feel like the other goal I would have for Listen World, this biography about Elsie Robinson, is that to lift all biography that in some way, shape, or form peels back the onion a little bit when it comes to grief, when it comes to death. And I think Elsie Robinson's story does that completely mm. because she suffered so much loss. God, that's such a gorgeous answer. And for whatever reason, what it's making me think of, my husband is English and I would say part of the recreation of his childhood was going to a stately homes where, you know, there's like a tea room to have coffee, but also we're going to wander around what used to be a very wealthy family, you know, landed gentry. And this is what's left over. And when my mom came over and took a trip with me, again, my mom was like, a, not a formally trained historian, but knew everything about everything, including gardens that she wanted to see, Sissinghurst, but we went to Winston Churchill's house. And I remember when you were asking about biographies on your Instagram, I was like giving you all these, you know, all these crazy examples, but one well, of them- I, I was writing that piece. There's yes. like a, an online platform, which is great called Bust. And it's a feminist platform. And I was writing a piece for them about like 10 biographies that do grief really well. And I was so happy to write that piece. Anyway, I interrupted, go on. No, no. And I'm going to link that in the show notes also, because I love, I mean, that's just a, it's a, that that's where I was headed was to highlight that piece because I remember, you know, go, I was like, all right, I'll walk around this gorgeous house and see these things. And my mother's understanding, I mean, she's older than me, but, but also having read everything that she read about who Winston Churchill was, but also how he experienced the world. And he experienced the world with tremendous untenable loss. I mean, there are letters about what it was like for him to be at boarding school. There are letters about deaths in his family around his mother dying, it, it's a real, and I've, in the back of my head, I was like, I'm not, you know, every book about Winston Churchill is, is five times the size of the Bible. So I wasn't racing to go read about it, but I was 
thinking to myself at the time, you know, the transformation around trauma, the traumatic growth that we're all looking for has existed since the dawn of the age of time, that the energy that begins as a bereft human being who feels as though I can't be on this planet without my person sometimes does. And I'm not saying to listeners out there, it's not worthwhile if you can't do this. I am simply saying this happens where people then go on to do extraordinary things that are fueled in part by their experience of loss. And Winston Churchill was absolutely one of those people in that family. You know, it's in, it's in the letters, it's in his relationship with his wife. But I, I think your book highlights, again, because of your interest and the incredible amount of research, which I do not, I did not envy you that incredible amount of research. Were you doing that during COVID? Was the research hard to do on account of sort of, you know, archives being limited and things getting into? I'm just Oh. found myself really curious about that. I have a, I have a good friend who's an archivist who, who can barely get into the Library of Congress because they let like five people in a day. And I just thought, I know she must have been working on this during that time. This couldn't have been easy to get your hands on the, the papers that you needed. It was a bear. Yeah. It was really tough during COVID and we relied on the kindness of archivists and librarians from coast to coast, librarians and archivists who on their one day, let's say in their office, because the institution was closed to patrons, would spend their time doing research for us and then scanning things and then emailing them to us. One case, Robinson, we didn't touch on this, worked in a gold mine for three (laughs) years to make ends meet the only woman on a motley crew of male gold prospectors. And for us to find out which exact mine that was, was a Herculean task. But once we did, we found the archive that held the original papers of the Ruth Pierce mine. And just to kind of give you an idea of how hard this was, you know, when you watch a cooking show and they have a camera mounted on the ceiling to give you that aerial view. Yeah. of a pot of soup being made or what have you, they mounted a camera in a very similar way so they could show us the pages of this document for us to see. They mounted a camera like a cooking show. Virtually via Zoom, we can look at their archival materials. I mean, the amount of help that we got was really quite extraordinary. And the book, Listen World, would never have been written on time and on deadline if it wasn't for the kindness of all of these institutions. I think the thread in there that is so extraordinary, right? I mean, she brought so many people together in those events that you're talking about, in the in the readership, in her columns, in her work. And that has lingered and continued, right? I mean, I think the best, some of the things that I love the most are when people reach out and say, this is a thing that I did with your mom or your dad, or this is how they helped me, or this is what they, and, you know, all the, all the while during this project, you have been finding that and then actually creating it anew with people who are having to help you in this extraordinary way to get the story out. So it's, I don't know, it feels like both sides of the coin, love and grief that are come together to, to launch this ship back out into the world for people to react to. And again, like I'm just one person, but it, but I really, it really did land in my heart in a way that I have found myself thinking about her, just like thinking about her in her life. And, and in some cases wondering how she would handle things or think about things or what her, idea of what now you know now you know I've been living with that sense for you know nearly 30 years since my mom died and I found that poem I've been living in this incredible space where Elsie Robinson and all her words were my secret right my incredible repository of hope and advice and guidance. And now that Listen World is 
out now that it's been published, now that it's been on, you know, the TV show Extra and covered by the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, all these wonderful ways of sharing her story. That to me is the most exciting because I feel like she's been my private little secret for too long. And I feel extraordinarily giddy, if you can tell, if you can hear, that I can now share and allow people to also feel this incredible woman's work and appreciate her incredibly powerful words. I also know because I, I, you know, I'm new into the book world, the incredible amount of effort it takes to make a book. And I mean, just make like a straightforward book when you're even just writing your own story. I really was struck by the heavy lift and it has to be a labor of love because the amount of effort and work with you and your co-author and all of the teams that you thank who have helped, who helped you. And, and it has to be filled with enthusiasm. And then the gift is that readers just get to dive in and they don't have to do all that heavy lifting. You've done it for yeah, the, It's funny that you mentioned the people that we thank in the acknowledgments. That is one long acknowledgement. <laughs> That's session. my favorite part of all books. And it's actually the part for my memoir that I'm working on right now. And yours is like a book in and of itself. There are, it's like, it's like the end of a movie where they're talking, you know, it's like the Scottish film said, and that, you know, yours is extra. It really does. If people are wondering how much effort went into, you can just peek to the back and see that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's also not just the names of people yeah. and their institution, but if there was a story about right. how we discovered a certain fact that couldn't kind of slow down the narrative and we really wanted to have it be a fast paced page turning book. If it was really important and it didn't find its way into the actual narrative of the book, you will find these it's wonderful awesome. kind of sidebars and the acknowledgements. It is. And even the way that you do choose to do the acknowledgements, again, feels like, you know, several villages who have been brought together for a festival or something, you know, it's like everybody's included and everybody. It was so much fun. And I'll say one thing, what's been so heartening, I, I just, I am so incredibly excited Every single place on my book tour so far, when Julie and I were doing events, when the book first came out, we went to different places in California, people who helped us, archivists and librarians and people from the tax assessor's office who helped us locate different real estate transactions. I mean, from point A to point Z, People who helped us do the research are now coming to our book. That is event. amazing. And you it get to meet so, them in person. Yes, it is uh, so exciting for us. Well, thank God for in-person events. Thank God for book tours being back because, you know, all the authors who didn't get to do that just had a different experience. So much of what we're talking about today is how the legacy of this extraordinary woman has been handed down and held by so many other people. And, you know, I think people who are listening to this are going to run right out and get the book because of our enthusiasm about, about her, you know, you don't want to miss out on the gift of it. And then, and then when you become the reader, you're also pulled into this extraordinary, you know, you're another one of the knowers of the extraordinary story, which is, and that really, I think is what made me think so much about my mom because she knew I didn't read biographies and really she would have read this book in like a day and I would get her on the phone and she would say have you read this book and I would say no and then she would say oh my god we'll get your tea I'll get my tea I'm going to tell you the whole story and then I wouldn't have to read the book because she would tell but she would want to pull me into the story right she would want me to know it because it's such a great story and and because you know we do we bear up on hard things and we feel inspired by you know, the way in which other people have survived things. And I really do think that's part of the takeaway. It's certainly what we try to do on the podcast is say, we get it, we see it, it's impossible. And people seem to survive it. They seem to survive grief and loss somehow, despite themselves. And, you know, sometimes they leave some breadcrumbs for us to follow, or at least get curious about and wonder, tell people what you're working on next. And I'm going to put in the show notes, hopefully we're going to get this out 
quickly because you're on book tour and I'd love for people to hear this and be able to come and find you and get a signed copy. But, but are you going to, you know, go to Turks and Caicos and rest for a little while? Like, what, what happens after, after this whirlwind? You know, I am an extrovert. I love being out and about and on book tour. So this is the part of the journey that I do not want to give short shrift to. So I am on the road and I'm committing to be on the road as long as there is hunger for Elsie Robinson. So I have events already booked, not just through September, October, but all the way through the beginning of 2023. So I am on the road. This is it. If anyone wants to talk with me after hearing this podcast, bring me to your book club or bring me to your church group or your high school to talk about women's history or to your college, or if you're a grief or hospice worker and you want to talk about Elsie's perspective about loss or how biography can be this incredibly important tool. You know, I am here and I feel like this is like my happy place, which is to share listen world to share Elsie Robinson. It's been my secret too long. And I'm really happy to be at this stage where I can let her voice be known and to help resurrect her legacy. One of the gifts of this podcast that I did not expect. And, you know, I, I think people are lucky if you, I don't know, once a month get to talk to somebody who's deeply passionate about what they do and, you know, throws a lot behind that and is in their purpose. I record three podcasts on Wednesdays. Like I get to do that really regularly. I love the idea that you're going to linger in with this project and with this woman and that you want to offer that out to everybody who wants to connect. That to me just feels like the truest of the true. What's the best way for people who are like, okay, I'm getting the book. I want to talk to Allison. How do they, how do they do that? And we'll also put it in the show notes. I'm everywhere on social media at A Gilbert Writer. My website is allisongilbert.com and Listen World, the biography that we've been chatting about is available everywhere. Books are sold. And I really would encourage people to go find you in those places because today we really talked about this book because it's the labor of love connected to all of the other bits and pieces but you are kind of a Renaissance woman. Like you've got a lot going on that you've been offering the world, not just in grief and loss, but as a writer and contributor to lots of things. So I would encourage people to go and take a look at what is out there to connect with you on because, you know, this project is one of your projects, but you've been writing again, I'll, I'll link some of it, but you have been writing really powerful words for us for quite a while. I am so grateful for this time. I mean, to spend an hour with you has been a great privilege and I am humbled to be included on your podcast. So thank you so much. You are completely lovely. I mean, I did tell you that I've been lightly stalking you for a little while. So this is, (laughs) and we're so lucky to get to work in other, you know, this, this is our podcast, but we get to work together in other things, which is really just the, the grief world is a, Um, a tough world to be in, but it's also some of the gentlest and most inspiring people I have ever met and worked with. So thank you so much. So good luck with everything. Thanks again. Thanks, Allison. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.